morning. Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and this morning we'll be talking about the nuts and bolts of Christian living. Just some real practical advice from First Thessalonians we've been studying through these last few weeks. Um, been tr- just trying to provide uh, just some kind of rubber meets the road, uh, practical instruction for how Christians should live. And we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 12 and go through the end of the chapter. Keep in mind that 1 Thessalonians is written about 20 years after the ascension of Jesus. So this is a fairly new congregation that Paul is giving instruction to on how to live as Christians are expected to live. So the first point that we want to make here is that believers must treat others with love and respect. That's a hallmark of who we are. And think about this. Human relationships always need attention, even in a church. Uh, The believers had few role models of the proper Christian leadership outside of Paul. They lived in a Gentile community um, influenced by Roman society. And the Romans uh, and their society um, had a powerful, uh, the powerful really had their way with the weak. The weak gave little beyond what we would call begrudged obedience to their masters. So Paul is instructing the Christians for a new new way of living. And he is uh, insisting that the people in the Christian congregation respect the leaders who worked hard among them. And again, this is within the church. You see that in verse 12. The work the leaders did is what merited respect and love. You see that in verse 13. There is qualifications for the love and respect that was um, expected was that the leaders among them should be ones who work and labor to serve the people. This would have shocked the people um, that were raised in the ways of Greece and Rome. You know, above all, their calling was to live in peace with each other. So treating spiritual leaders with disrespect and dishonor distracts and discourages them. The way we treat our church leaders directly affects the work of Christ. It, is, it also reveals something about how we regard the Lord's work. So we need to be careful how we discuss the church and its leaders in front of our children or our grandchildren. We should try to build up the respect that we want them to show the church and its leaders. And then moving on to verse 14, Paul instructs the congregation on how to treat three specific groups of people. He says that the idol needed to be warned. It had become a sore spot in the congregation. Some may have been just plain lazy, but some dress it up in spiritual rationale using their waiting on the Lord's return as a pretext to be lazy and not to work. Regardless, their idleness was a poor testimony to unbelievers. It created friction in the congregation, making the task of the leaders all that much harder. We rarely hear much about dealing with timidity or timid people, yet Paul addressed it here. Perhaps the testimony of some believers suffered from just their natural timidness or shyness. Unlike the opportunistic idol who needed warning, the timid needed to be encouraged. Their hearts were in the right place, even though they had trouble speaking up when needed. And then the third group of people are the weak. The weak needed others to help them. It is easy not to understand the needs of those who are weak, who are weaker than we are. I can do this. Why can't they? We do not know the kind of weakness that Paul meant. It could have been weak faith. It could have been weak resources. It could have been physical weakness or some combination of all three. But no matter, weaker people in the congregation need our patience and help, not our condemnation. And finally, Paul urged patience with everyone. Not everyone faces the same obstacles. We all have different weaknesses, problems, and resources. We do not grow spiritually at the same rate. Patience demonstrates Christ-likeness and is an external indication that we are becoming like Christ. Living in peace with each other in our church relationships will require patience. Even in church, people sometimes feel that they have been wronged. And Paul instructed them not to repay evil for evil. And we see that in verse 15. 
Instead, kindness to all was to mark believers. It is important for us to understand that Paul's practical advice, such as we see in today's text, grew directly out of his doctrinal or theological understanding. God's truth is to guide the way that we live. So what we need to do is point out that Paul's instruction for how we relate to and encourage fellow believers illustrates how God established the church to make disciples and transfer the faith. If we do not engage in love and kindness and respect towards one another, we cannot begin to make disciples and transfer the faith. And that's the responsibility of every person. So we need to encourage ourselves as parents to discuss this truth with our family members at home. There's another aspect of this that I want to dig into, and that's that Paul's words surely indicate that some kind of church government already existed, but we do not know exactly what kind of structure it was. Paul set up churches with leaders who had responsibility for the congregation. So church leadership in the New Testament was different from leadership in the society around them. The same phrase for being over the church also indicates to care for, and we see that in Romans 12:8 and 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, verse 12, and chapter 5, and verse 17. Shepherds direct the flock and decide where it should go, but at the same time, they constantly look out for the welfare of the flock. We can call it servant leadership. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is this, that according to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 15, that we need to respect church leadership, and that's not just the, past, the pastors. That's the, any leadership that God has placed to encourage us and develop us and bring us along. So how can we show respect for our church leadership? Well, here's some examples. We can seek to practice what they preach and teach. We can support the efforts to help the church grow and mature. And we can pray for and encourage them as they do their ministry. What's another way? We can do what is best for others is sometimes difficult. But why is that the case? They may need to be warned or corrected, or they may have treated us poorly. But like the scripture says, we should not render evil for evil, knowing that Christ, even while we were his enemy, still died for us and loved us and purchased our salvation. So as Christians, let us follow the hallmark to be ones who love and respect each other within the church. Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and thank you for joining us for the second part of this uh, lesson series on the nuts and bolts of Christian living. We covered that the believers need to be ones who show love and respect, and we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we began in verse 12 through verse 15. I hope you had a chance to listen to the first part of this. But beginning the second part will be in verses 16 through verse 22. And what we're going to highlight here is that believers need to keep their hearts right with God. First, we talked about keeping our hearts right with one another within the church. But more importantly, we need to keep our hearts right with God. So we're moving from the external to the internal. Paul's next instructions seem to move from the external actions to the attitudes of the heart. Nevertheless, attitudes cannot be confined to the heart. They will always display themselves in actions. In verse 16, we see this, that first came joy. People inside and outside of the church can tell if an individual or a congregation is joyful. We cannot fake joy for long, neither can we hide it. Knowing Christ and his blessings should lead to joy. Believers who cultivate joy will more easily give themselves to frequent prayer. We find that in verse 17, the instruction to pray without ceasing. Joyful believers will more easily display thankfulness even in difficult situations. And this is important that Paul specified being thankful in all situations is not the same as being thankful for all situations. We do not cultivate joy, prayer, and thankfulness just to help the preacher or keep the peace. It is God's will for believers. We see that in verse 18. 
When we speak to our families about God's will, let us make sure we emphasize what the Bible clearly says about it. In today's passage, we find that it is God's will for the believers to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. So to dig a little bit deeper, what does Paul mean by pray without ceasing? Well, without ceasing comes from a Greek word that means continually or without omission. Paul used this word in Romans 1, 9 to convey that the Roman believers were constantly on his mind, and in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, to indicate he constantly gave thanks for the Thessalonians. The fact that he constantly did these things, however, did not exclude the other things Paul thought about or gave thanks for. It simply means they came back to his mind continually. Did Paul ever eat or sleep, praying every moment? Of course not. Praying without ceasing is what Jesus taught in the parable about the widow who sought justice, and you will find that in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. It means to pray consistently on every appropriate occasion without giving up. So as we continue on in verse 19, more literally means to stop putting out the Spirit's fire. It says, quench not the Spirit, indicating that they were already doing so. So what did Paul mean by not putting out the fire of the Spirit? The Holy Spirit works within all the believers of a congregation to do God's work. His choice and distribution of spiritual gifts may surprise us, but we must be careful not to stand in the way of something the Spirit is doing among us. Some even despise prophecies from God, probably because they did not agree with the choice of God's messenger. See that in verse 20. Instead, Paul advised the Thessalonians to examine prophecies and hold on to what they found good. We see that in verse 21. However, not all messages, teaching, or practices that teachers claimed were from God really came from God. Satan also worked among the congregation to sow confusion and discord. Whenever evil appeared, whatever kind of evil it might be, they were to refuse it or to avoid it. And we see that in verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Think about this when we're talking about verse 22, that some translations speak of avoiding the appearance of evil in verse 22. But many readers then take that to mean that if something even looks evil, then it must be. This text, however, speaks of something else. It speaks of abstaining from or avoiding every kind or form of evil. It's closer to what Paul is saying. So what we must do is practice what is good and avoid what is evil. So how do we hold fast to what is good? Well, first and foremost, we need to identify from God's word what is good and right and put those things into daily practice. And secondly, what are some evils that are common to our culture? How can we avoid those evils? Again, we must go to the Word of God to be aware of Satan and how he tries to confuse us and draw us into sin and that we can avoid those things. Just as Jesus in the wilderness was tempted by the devil, he used the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to defend against the attacks of the devil. And as Christians, the more familiar we are with the Word of God, the more we will be able to identify error and that we will be able to practice what is good and avoid what is evil. I hope this second part has been helpful, and I hope that you'll join me for the final section, God is working to make believers holy. Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and I want to thank you for joining us for this lesson on the nuts and bolts of Christian living. We walked through the first two parts of this um, series so far in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we talked about how the Christians are to relate to one another, and then we just covered how the Christians are to relate to God. And the thing about uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through what we've gone through already, verse 22, it can be a little bit of an overwhelming list, and we wonder how in the world are we going to be able to achieve this. Well, the final part of the series is this, is that we don't um, labor in these tasks alone. 
when it comes to rejoicing or praying without ceasing, quenching not the spirit, all the other things that come along with this, that we must remember that God is working to make believers holy. It is God who is doing the sanctifying work within us. It's he who saves us and it's he who sets us apart for his work and his purposes. So 1 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 23 through 28, Paul did not know if he would ever see the Thessalonians again. He did not know how they would receive his instructions. What else could he do for them? Well, in verse 23, we see that he says he prays for them, the greatest work that he could do. The Thessalonians might have appeared to be an isolated congregation with few resources and only small prospects for spiritual success. Yet, Paul understood that the creator of the universe, the redeemer of the world, was present and active among them. His prayer that God would set, apart, set them apart for his service and keep them from sin was not a prayer of last resort. Prayer was Paul's primary source for the congregation because Paul understood God's faithfulness. We see that in verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Prayer was Paul's primary source for the congregation because God wanted the success of the Thessalonian church even more than Paul did. So digging a little bit deeper there, some theologians teach that human beings are composed of three distinct parts, body, soul, and spirit. Others hold that we are composed of only two parts, body, material, soul, immaterial. Clearly, we are more than matter and energy, whether in two parts or three. But Paul's reference to the body, soul, and spirit in 523 does not necessarily settle the matter. He could indeed mean three separate elements, or he could be using synonyms. The language allows either, the interpre allows either interpretation. After all, his point was for believers to put all that they are, the entire person, into God's service. That's an important part to realize, that we are both material and we are immaterial, but we are one person that God's joined together. And Paul's point here is that the person physically and spiritually should be set, set apart for the purposes of God, that the internal man who we are should be seen evident in the external uh, man. So continuing on, we have in the final verses, verse 25 through 28, an image of a very close relationship between Paul and the congregation. He wanted to pray for him. He wanted them to pray for him. He wanted those who first received the letter to pass it along with a family greeting to the rest of the believers. He wanted to make sure someone read it to all the congregation. Paul was not shy about speaking to the new believers. He understood that what he had written was important for their walks with God. He wanted everyone to profit from what the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. And he knew that in attending to what he had written would facilitate their experience of God's grace. So in verse 27, Paul makes it clear that he wanted his words to be read aloud to the entire congregation. And his words are still being read aloud to the congregations today. This could have happened at one large meeting or it could have happened multiple times among smaller groups or households of believers. The important thing to consider is that Paul intended his words to be distributed and read. And this implies that Paul took his teaching seriously. He recognized his writing as an extension of his own ministry. His letters could go places that he could not. People could copy them, and they did. People could read them at odd or otherwise inconvenient hours according to their own needs without having to wake a weary apostle or send someone to query him at the next town. Paul's personal or face-to-face -face ministry also, had his writing minist also made his writing ministry more powerful. Because of what he did, what he wrote carried more weight. We would be wrong, however, to assume his writing was a less personal form of ministry. It was very personal. His letters are full of personal references and obvious signs of familiarity with the congregation. Through them, Paul and the other apostles traveled out among God's churches, ministering then and through the ages to many more than they ever could have addressed in person. 
So what's the takeaway? That it is God who wants to make us more like Christ. And what that means is for the believer to be what we call sanctified. And that is to be set apart for God and his service to be made holy. And that's for the individual person, each of us need to ask God, what needs to be put into my life to make me more like Christ, to be more holy? And what do I need to remove from my life so that I can be more like Christ? And then finally, how does God work to sanctify us and make us holy? Well, first and foremost, he uses his word and then he uses circumstances to make us more like Christ and help keep us from sin. I hope this practical instruction has been helpful for you. We find it from the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, that much of the Christian life is just practical and that we need to discipline ourselves and labor along with God who desires our success even more than we do. And he desires our success, he desires the church's success, and he desires your family's success even more than you could imagine. So I hope this has been helpful, and I look forward to being with you again next week.